Good morning. I am Mike Overstreet. I got a good morning. I am Mike Overstreet. <laughs> um, I am the teaching pastor here, and y'all, we made it. We are in the last week of our series, 12 Words. We have gone through three months of discussing, engaging, looking deeply into 12 spiritual essentials, the bedrock principles and moves of the spiritual life. And we've been engaging them through a metaphor of unpacking and cleaning houses. Because we, what we came to understand as we set up for this series is that much like in our physical homes, we leave maybe the place we were born, and over the course of our lives, we just start to accumulate junk, don't we? Open a closet in your house, you're probably finding some things you're carrying around that you don't use anymore. In the same way, in our spiritual homes, in our lives, in, in this engagement of spirituality, I think we leave home with the basics, and over time, we just pick up junk, don't we? Things like control, fear, denial, secrecy. And we just all have to go through seasons of learning by unlearning opening up those boxes that we've been carrying around, naming what's in them, and just getting them, out, just getting them out of our house so we can get back to spirituality as it was meant to be. And we started with powerlessness. It's this beautiful spiritual idea that we are not in control, but someone is. And we moved quickly into hope and trust that when we understood that we were powerless, rather than going into despair, we were able to have hope in a God that was good and we could trust him with our lives. And then we quickly moved into what does this mean for how we think about ourselves? We talked about self-honesty, the practice of just getting real with the crap in our lives. I mean, just naming it, not for the purpose of shame, but so we can heal, because you can't heal what you can't name. And then we talked about confession, bringing other people into the journey with us. Once again, not to shame ourselves, but so we can just tell them the truth of who we are for the purpose of growth. And that led us to release and dependence. Release being the opposite of fear, because quite frankly, change, healing is often scary, isn't it? Because it means doing something new. It means changing into someone that you've never met before, which means that we had to learn to be dependent on God, that we make these moves to come into contact with him, but we know that God is the one who does the healing of those things. And then we talked about our relational world, that you can't go through this journey without fixing these relationships. It's not all about this one. So we talked about forgiveness, reconciliation, being a people who can do those things. And then finally, we closed it out with the daily practices to keep this car going. Daily self-examination and daily prayer. Taking time every day just to look at ourselves and then to find union with God to begin that healing. And that leads us to our last box in the series. It's the final box. It's the easiest probably to understand, and it's the hardest to unpack. But it's the one we have to do to land this journey well. And it is the box of self-centeredness. You see, I think one of the things that happens in the spiritual life is that we, we go through all these moves, we grow, we heal, and at some point we can start to think that that was all for me. That the whole goal of the spiritual life is about what it does for me. And while personal growth and healing is central to what we do, I would posit that it was never meant to just be about you. 
that there's something about the spiritual life that I would call becoming a messenger in which we are supposed to give what we have been given away to someone else, pointing to someone bigger than ourselves. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what it means to unpack this box, to get back to being a messenger of God. And we're going to do it by exploring two of the most famous teachings of Jesus in the Bible. They're found in Matthew chapter 5, and they kick off this three-chapter-long teaching of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. And to understand what's going on in these passages, you actually have to understand what's been leading up to it in Matthew's gospel. You see, Matthew begins his story with Jesus' birth, and then it fast-forwards to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus kicks off his ministry with three crucial movements. The first one is he passes through the waters of baptism. The second one is he goes into the wilderness where we read that he spends 40 days being tested, basically to see if he will give up God's calling in favor of worldly power. He succeeds that testing. And he exits the wilderness and he goes immediately into the poorest areas of Galilee. And he begins calling to himself some very unexpected people who he proclaims the kingdom to and heals. And I say unexpected because you need to understand that in Jesus' culture, especially the surrounding Roman culture, things like wealth and status and influence were the primary determination of someone's value. So if God was looking in the cultural eye to start a movement in our world, who would he call? The kings, the rich, you know, the powerful. But who comes to Jesus as he begins to proclaim this gospel in the poorest areas of Galilee? We read it's the marginalized, the poor, the lame, the sick, the spiritually broken, and they just flood to him. And then Jesus goes up on a mountain to teach this crowd of marginalized people who he has healed, who he has been proclaiming the kingdom to, what it means to live in God's new reality. And you might have missed something that took place. You see, we don't see it often, but if you were a first century Jewish person, those movements leading to him going up on that mountain would have been like a light bulb moment. It would have been a big deal. Jesus has done something symbolic and powerful in the way he has started his ministry. I want to show you. You see, in the Old Testament, there's another story that includes people going through water, someone being called on a mountain where they are giving a teaching from God, and then them wandering in a desert. It's the Exodus story. It is the central story of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And what you find in the Exodus is that God comes to Israel when they're in slavery, they're in Egypt, they're under Pharaoh. We've heard this story. And he liberates them. How does he liberate them? By passing them through the water of the Red Sea. And then what does he do? He leads them into the desert where there is a man named Moses who is called onto a mountain, Mount Sinai. And what is he given on that mountain? Bible trivia. The Ten Commandments. Thank you. God's law, God's instruction, God's teaching for what it means to be his chosen people. The thing that God saw is making them distinct, holy, set apart. So they give Moses the teachings, he takes it to the people, and then Israel ends up spending 40 years wandering in the desert because when they get tested, they ultimately can't stay true to that calling. 
So before they can enter the promised land, they have to go through 40 years of reshaping, reforming by God. Did you catch what happened there? Did you catch what Jesus is doing? Jesus symbolically passes through the waters of baptism. He goes into the wilderness to be tested, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And where Israel failed, he succeeds. And when he comes out, he goes up on a mountain to begin to teach a group of Israelites. See, if you were in Jesus' audience, you got it. Jesus is saying God's new exodus, God's liberation, God's kingdom has come through me. And now, like Moses, I am going to teach you what it means to live within it. I mean, this would have been historical for the average Jewish person sitting in that, that space. And Jesus begins to give them this new teaching, this new instruction on what it means to be God's people, to live in the world as God intends. And he does something very interesting. He begins with a list of blessings. We heard them. It's the Beatitudes, as they've been called in Christian history. And I just think this is fascinating. So I'm, I'm going to read them, and then we're going to dive into what, why he starts his teaching on the kingdom of God this way. So he begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So why does Jesus start this teaching in this way? And to understand it, we have to start by getting at the word blessed. You see, I think in our culture, this has become incre like incredibly watered down. It's like, hashtag blessed, got a new car. Like, hashtag blessed, Maui. But that's not, <laughs> that's not what it means in the Bible. This is a powerfully charged religious term. You see, those who were blessed in Jesus' time were those who were considered to have access to God's presence, and thus they were receiving his favor. In other words, it was those who had in some way earned the favor of God, and you could see it in their life. And these blessings give us an interesting thought exercise, because if you look at it, do any of the things he said sound like people who might be receiving God's favor in that moment? Those who mourn, the meek, those who are poor in spirit. Doesn't seem to be what's going on. So Christians have puzzled over this for centuries. And a very common answer to this is that what Jesus is doing is he's giving us an ethical teaching. He is saying, do these things and you will be blessed. But there's something problematic with that. For one, or is God telling us we have to mourn all the time or we won't receive his favor? Or what if I'm just like trying to get persecuted and no one will do it? Like, I'm just like, God, persecute me. <laughs> Am I outside of God's blessing? See, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. And then the other side of the coin was that people said the complete opposite. It's a list of things that we can't measure up to, so God's using it as a tool to shame us. 
It's supposed to remind us of how bad we are so that we will repent. And I think both of these ideas just utterly miss the point. See, I think the problem is that they abstract the blessings from the surrounding story, which is a dangerous thing to do with the Bible. See, I read this author named Dallas Willard who really highlighted this for me, especially when it comes to Beatitudes. He basically pointed out that what people do in this moment is they they take the Beatitudes, they pull them out of context, and then they try to make them work. And what we end up doing is we end up imagining that when Jesus teaches, he's talking to the clouds. He's like, blessed are the poor in spirit, love your enemies. And there's just like, I don't know, that's crazy, guys. That's not what's happening. Jesus was talking to a crowd of real people. Jesus was talking to a crowd of people that he had been coming into contact with, that he had been healing for the first few chapters of the gospel. Jesus is talking to a crowd of poor people, sick people, broken people, spiritually lost people. And he says first and foremost a blessing. You see, I don't think that this is an ethical teaching. I think what Jesus is doing is profound. He's beginning his new kingdom teaching, his new vision of the world by looking at a crowd of people that we least expect to start the kingdom of God and saying, you got it. It starts with you first and foremost. What he does is he looks at people and I think he is actually describing some of these people's very situation and lot in life. So when he says blessed, are the poor in spirit. It's actually better understood as the spiritual zeros. It is the people who by all worldly means are farthest from God's favor, who have gone spiritually bankrupt under the weight of this world, the rock bottoms. And he says, blessed are you. He says, blessed are those who mourn, those who have lost everything, have lost someone dear to them. Do you think either of those groups of people are in the crowd that he's speaking to? Do you think anyone would have said that? That's me. I'm mourning. I'm poor in spirit. See, I think Jesus is doing something amazing. I think he's speaking to this group of hungry, poor, broken, lost people who have come into contact with him, who have been healed, and he is saying, despite what this world teaches you about yourself, despite what you may think about yourself, God has pronounced you blessed, that you are in his presence right now, and you are receiving his favor, and that is the first word of the new kingdom. And though the world may think of you as the lowest of the low, somehow that status of lowliness has actually made you more likely to accept the newness of what God is doing in the world. Because quite frankly, you got nothing else to lose. So you're not afraid of giving up power, of giving up your wealth, of giving up your influence. You get the kingdom first. You are blessed. Jesus is turning upside down his audience's expectations entirely. He pronounces a universal blessing, an invitation into this new thing that God is doing. He says, you all, the poor, the marginalized, the sick, the lame, the poor in spirit, you are the ones that the kingdom is now accessible to through me. You are blessed first and foremost. I could spend all day on these. I think you guys see I'm passionate about this. I could spend 10 Sundays walking through how each of these creates a beautiful mosaic of what God wants to do in our world. But I actually want to spend most of our time on what comes next. 
You see, he announces this universal blessing, this kingdom invitation that is being sent out to the least likely people, the ones who need it the most, and then he moves immediately into a conversation of how we respond to it if we choose to accept it. He basically says the blessing is there. You got it. You are already blessed because you came into contact with me. Now, how do you live it out? How do you live in response to this freely given thing? And he uses two metaphors. He uses salt and light. So we read first in 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except for to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, as usual, we lose some of the power of this metaphor in our modern age. You know, we think of things like Salt Bay, probably. You know, God, there are no millennials. There's none of the nine either. No one gets it. Falls flat. Uh, <laughs> but we think of it, you know, as this cooking material, which it is, and it was then too. But it's actually far more important than that in the ancient world. You see, for one, first, salt in a time without refrigeration was the only preservative you had for foods that would rot. So without salt, you're not getting meat. You're not getting some vegetables. You're not getting some of the things that are crucial to a healthy human diet. Salt was critically important for that. Two, salt was also likely the only flavoring you would get for a meal, especially if you were a poorer person. Things like spices and seasonings, those are usually from world trade for us. So if you were a poor person in Galilee, you weren't getting it, which means that if you wanted any flavor in a meal, you needed salt. Third, it was also sometimes a fertilizer for poorer people. Not a great one, but in small quantities, it could be used with some plants. So Jesus' first metaphor for describing how we respond to this free blessing and invitation is that it should make us people who are like salt. And that gets lost on us, but think about how that would have hit with the audience that's in front of them. Those who accept God's blessing and invitation respond by being preservatives of what God is doing in our world, his restoration, his healing, his teaching on new life. They're preserved in the people who accept that blessing. Those who accept God's blessing and invitation respond by becoming a crucial flavoring for a world that is often without flavor. They become a people who are a vital, fresh taste of something new in our world. Those who accept God's blessing and invitation respond by being kingdom fertilizer, a community where people can grow into a new, upside-down new person, where healing and restoration is fostered and grown out of the dirt of the communities that Jesus is calling together. Salt was vital for human life. So Jesus tells us that when we respond to the kingdom invitation, to the kingdom blessing, when we live in the kingdom, we better be people who are vital for new human life. Growth, change, healing, restoration. And then he moves into another metaphor that's probably even more lost on us. It's a metaphor of light. You see, what he says is, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, you let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I'm fascinated by light and dark and the use of that metaphor in the Bible because I don't think it resonates with us today as much as it should. See, in our 21st century concepts of the world, light's a lot easier to to get access to than it would have been in the ancient world, and it's a lot less important. See, in the ancient world, I think light had some properties that are just alien to us. I think the first thing is that light took time and intentionality. I think for today, if you want light, you just flick on a switch, right? And then boom, the loom lights up. But when you lived in the ancient world, light meant fire. And fire meant intentional work. It meant that before it got dark, you had to have the materials you needed. You had to have the lamp, the oil, the wick, the flint, the sparks. And then you had to maintain it. You couldn't just start it and let it go because if it ran out, if you didn't keep it going and it went out in the middle of the night, you are out of luck. I think the second thing that we don't understand is that light was a crucial source of warmth, especially in the wilderness when we are traveling. You see, again, we have cars. Most people then didn't even have a horse. So travel meant walking. And it usually meant walking a long time for multiple days, overnight, often without shelter. So when you are traveling in the wilderness and it gets dark in the desert and it starts to freeze, whoo, if you don't have fire, you're in trouble. And I think it also, third, was a primary source of security and safety. Because again, imagine you're traveling, it gets dark before you reach your destination, you guys have been camping, you start hearing the rustling out in the bushes. Yeah, this is a different world, guys. It's a wilder world. So if you were in your camp and you didn't have a fire, you can't see what's going on around you. You don't know what's out there. You needed light to have any level of safety or security in your camp. But more than anything, I think what we miss out on is that light was a source of direction. First and foremost, within your home. Ever been in a room without light at all? How is navigating that? Ever stepped on a Lego in the middle of the night? (laughs) It is the worst. Again, they don't have the smartphone by their bed. They don't have the clap light. (laughs) We do, that's why I brought it up. (laughs) Uh, So to navigate in your own home, you needed to take the time to light a lamp. But even more than that, think about what it would have meant for those traveling in the dark wilderness. Most roads didn't have travel markers. They don't have a GPS. They don't have the quality of maps we have. So light was often the only way you knew the direction home. It's easy to get lost in a dark desert. So you had to follow the stars. You had to navigate by the sky or, in Jesus' metaphor, a city or town on a hill. See, this is a time without light pollution. So when you were traveling in that dark wilderness, you could see a lit-up city from miles away. It would just shine in the distance, and when you looked in that direction, you knew, go that way. That's the way to civilization. That's the guide. It said, 
after those long days in which you are travel weary, you're exhausted, you might be a little lost, you could see the light of a city and say, that's safety, that's rest, that's home. And Jesus says that our response to God's blessing and invitation is to become people who maintain the light of that blessing, invitation, and how we live. He says we need to be a people who provide a source of warmth and safety for those who are cold and caught in the dark. More than that, he says that we need to be a people who point the way home, who show people wandering in the desert this way for rest. This way is home. I mean, that's, a, that's amazing to me, guys. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say God is the only salt and light in the world. Now, there's a capital Y-O-U. You are the salt and the light. God may be the source of the flavor. He may be the one who lights the lamp, but you are the one in this passage who is to be those things. He says, it is the person who has come into contact with kingdom blessing and has been healed by it and has experienced that invitation, who has tasted that flavor, who has seen that light that now must flavor and shine themselves. You are the salt and the light. I mean, that is beautiful. And I think we miss the power of that. Jesus says, be the salt and light in a world that is often so flavorless and dark because it needs you to. It needs you. But in classic Jesus form, he doesn't just let us sit around with our metaphors all day. He usually builds in one of those hyper-convicting challenges. And I think it speaks directly to this lax box of self-centeredness that we need to unpack today. You see, he reminds us that more often than not, our human impulse is to take that blessing, take that invitation, and then just keep it for ourselves. He, I think our impulse is usually self-centeredness, and I believe that it is the final and the hardest box to unpack. We come into the spiritual life, we experience deep transformative growth and blessing from God, from other people, and then we just want to sit with it. We want to hold on to it. It becomes just Jesus and me. And we can end up living in this space where we begin to believe that the entire purpose of the spiritual life was about my growth, it was about me, it's mine, it's about my relationship with God and no one else. And there's just one teensy little problem. You are included in the free universal blessing and invitation, but it was never meant to be just about you. It was always meant to be something we receive and then we give it away. You see, I look at the warnings of Jesus, and the first one he says, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. Salt was always meant to be a flavoring, a preservative, a fertilizer, which means we were always meant to be a flavoring, a preservative, and a fertilizer. The salt sit around tasting itself. It doesn't go, mmm, I'm so salty. No, it does it for something else, which means that we do it for someone else. You see, I think what Jesus gets at here is that when we fail to do this, he thinks we fail to be what we were intended to be. Jesus says, man, if you fail to do this, you're just a bunch of rocks. 
with no flavor. Anyone want to put this on your steak tonight? You miss out. You miss out on why we were blessed and invited in the first place. Or how about in terms of light? He says it's like you do all this hard work at night, you light the lamp, and then once it gets dark, you put a, a bowl over it. Is this lamp doing what it's supposed to have done? Is this lamp good for anything? No, because that's because the light was never meant to shine for itself. Light doesn't even think to shine for itself. It was always lit for someone else. Light shining for itself is like a bowl over a lamp, and when it gets dark, it can't shine in the darkness. It can't light up the house. It can't point people home because it was never meant to be doing it for itself. We light the lamp to point people home. And when we don't, when we think it's about me, it's like we just smother it. It's like we just cover it up. It's like we go through all the work and then we might as well just turn it off. Because it's not what it was supposed to be in the first place and it doesn't illuminate anything. This is convicting. See, I think myself included, many of us go through series like 12 Words, we go through the spiritual essentials, and we find the Beatitudes. We're like, yes, the blessing, we receive it, we accept the invitation, the love, the forgiveness, the healing, the new life, and then we just sit with it. We just stop there. But Jesus is clear in that last line, the blessing was supposed to make us a people who glorify someone else. It says we glorify our Father in heaven with kingdom deeds for other people. I think the blessing was always meant to make us a messenger for the one who did the blessing, a messenger for the one who created the flavor, a messenger for the one who lit the lamp in us, a messenger for the one who's building the kingdom. We were always blessed to become a blessing. And when we forget that, we lose our way. I think we never actually internalize that that blessing and invitation was supposed to mean something beyond ourselves, and we just get lost. We just miss the point. There's a quote, actually, from my favorite science fiction author, Frank Herbert, that I think just hits this perfectly. It's like the gut punch. He says, religion must remain an outlet for people who say to themselves, I am not the kind of person I want to be. It must never sink into an assemblage of the self-satisfied. The salt saying, oh, I taste so good. The light saying, look how pretty I my light is. Look how much I shine. Christ believes that we need to unpack this box to be who we were meant to be. The world needs a people of divine flavor and divine light. The world needs a place for people who are lost and just can't do it anymore. People who have just been beaten down by this life, who can't carry the weight, who feel lost in the wilderness and just need to find a way home. I mean, God invites us to be that for other people. Do you understand how beautiful that is? We get to be that we do this right. But if we give in to self-centeredness, we just become an assemblage 
of the self-satisfied. And we miss the point. I think we respond to this blessing, to this journey, by giving it away. That's the final move. By becoming messengers in how we flavor and light up his world. Because it needs us too. And that's, I think, what it means to unpack the box of self-centeredness. I think that what it means is to become a messenger for something bigger than ourselves. And I want to close just by getting real with you all, with myself, because I think that's what Jesus does more often than not, doesn't he? We love the nice Jesus, but there's the Jesus that sometimes comes by and says, you're missing it. And we need that Jesus as much as we need the loving one. And honestly, I think if Jesus doesn't come at me in this way, sometimes I never unpack this box. I just don't. So I want to speak directly to a few just different groups of people in this room, myself included. First, I want to speak to the people who need to hear the Beatitudes. Those of you who are mourning, who are poor in spirit, who are deeply lost and feel far from home, this journey we've been on begins with one simple universal truth. You are blessed. You are loved. You are invited. There is a God who wants to show you the way home. And he loves you infinitely. That's the first word he speaks before giving you any teaching. He says, I love you right where you are. I need you to hear that first and foremost. God tells you, I am telling you, his invitation and blessing is for you, no matter where you are. It's freely given. That's where we start. Jesus looking at the last people we'd expect and saying, you are blessed. Second group I want to speak to are those of us who don't think that we can be salt and light. You see, I, this text is clear. All of us are critically important to what God is doing in the world. No matter who you are, what you've done, God is seeking to use you to bless someone else. This isn't just something for the super spiritual people to do. This isn't just E3's pastoral staff getting to be salt and light. Everyone is called to do this in the kingdom. Jesus speaks directly to you in whatever wilderness you are in, whatever lot in life you've been given, and says, I believe you can be a light. I believe you can be salt. I need you to realize that you are blessed so you can be a blessing. You just need to be willing to accept how God sees you. Because quite frankly, God believes in us a lot more than we usually believe in ourselves. He needs you to be salt and light for someone else. It's not an option in the kingdom. And last, most importantly for our box today, I want to speak to the people that until this point just haven't taken the step to give it away to unpack the box of self-centeredness by becoming a messenger in the blessing for others. And I've been this person. Sometimes I still am this person, radically impacted by God, by other people, by this very community. And yet, for a lot of my faith, I just held on to it. I just didn't see myself as either good enough or I simply just didn't want to give it away because I thought it was mine. I earned it. 
It's my life, my story, my treasures, my talents, my gifts. And I lived in that self-centered space for a good amount of time, and guess what? I never grew. Because kingdom growth only comes when I truly realize that it was never mine in the first place. The blessing, the invitation of the beatitudes of God's kingdom wasn't earned. Neither was my life, my talents, my wealth, or my story. Jesus says it is clear. None of it is or ever was mine. It is all a gift from the God that blesses. And Jesus sees believing this, coming to realize this as central to living in his kingdom. It's simple. Not easy, but it's simple. And it's delusion. It's the delusion that it's mine that keeps me from being who I am meant to be and doing what I am called to do. So I would ask you, I would ask myself, where are you holding on to God's blessing? Maybe it's in your own story, your own story of invitation, your life. Maybe that's what you're holding on to. You see, a life of spirituality means that we've all been given a story of transformation. I was once this way, I encountered Jesus, and now I'm this way. A little better, a little healthier, a little more whole, a little more like God. Maybe you've been invest, blessed and you've been invited into this community and you just haven't given that away yet. But I promise you, there is someone in your life, in this community, who needs to hear your story of what God has done for you. They need to hear you say, you also can come home. It's this way. I know that I never started to heal from the darkest brokenness in my life until I got into a growth group. I laid myself bare and someone said, I've been there. I've been where you're at. It's going to be okay. Do this. Come this way. You can come home. Let me tell you my story. And it was in the, the meshing of those two things that I got better. Someone needs to hear your story. They need to see your light. They need to taste the salt of the kingdom through you. They need your help in this community. So if you're not connected to people in this community, why aren't you? Why aren't you in a growth group? Why aren't you sharing your life with other people? Why aren't you giving back? What's holding, holding it up? Is it shame? I'm not good enough? Is it, is it secrecy? I can't tell people that. Is it isolation? What is it? We need you. God says we need you to be an invitation and a blessing to someone else. You just got to give that story away. But maybe... You are in a growth group. Maybe you fall into a different category. Maybe you're just plugged in, you're doing life, but maybe it's your time and your talents that you're holding on to. Maybe you've gone into a space where you could give back, but there's someone in your relational world, a thing in this church that needs just a little bit of your time, but you have come to see it as too precious. It's too valuable as mine. And when it comes time for you to give that time for the building of something bigger than yourself, sorry, I gotta watch Netflix. Sorry, I can't give that away. That's my TV time. Or maybe you've been helped by someone in this community and you just haven't started that process of serving other people yet. In E3, 
in Tallahassee, globally, Uganda, Haiti, Guatemala. What would it look like to give back your time for something just a little bit bigger than yourself? To realize that it's a gift and it can be a blessing for someone else. You have time and talents that can be used to make this world a better place, but to do that, you need to put them in play for a kingdom outside of your own. God's kingdom. Or maybe it's the one that none of us like to talk about, especially here in America. Maybe it's your treasures and your resources that you just can't let go of. You know that giving helps support things that have helped you or have helped other people in your life. You've seen the fruit of it, and you know that generosity is needed to do the work of flavoring and shining and healing in this world. But you find yourself struggling with those internal voices of scarcity and fear and ownership. I can't give away my money. I earned it. Oh, if I gave away my money, if I gave away these treasures, well, how would I get mine? And those voices of self-centeredness play, and we just can't let go of it. And people, the idol of money is the single greatest idol in this country. We hate talking about this in our culture, but it's just our reality. Our wealth, our treasures, our resources are not our own. Period. Stop. End of sentence. They were always, always, always God's. He gifted them to us, and he asks us to use them to bless his world. That's the end of the equation. And I'm not talking to the single mother here trying to get by. I am not talking to the person struggling with chronic unemployment. I am not shaming you if you just can't give back right now. You have other ways to give. You have time, you have talent, you have your story. I am speaking to myself. And probably some other people in this room are going, yeah, that's me. I know that there was a season of my life where I had the ability to give back, I had the ability to give more, and I just didn't do it. I just didn't. I'm just being honest. I know for a long season, people came into my life through growth groups, through mentors, through all this ministry happening by volunteers being poured into me, and I just would not help make that happen for someone else. Just being honest. I had to learn to let go of that, to be light and salt. The fact is, we usually have the ability to give, and we just can't get past those fears, those scarcities, the feeling of ownership, the voices of self-centeredness. But there are lost people who need us to learn to give it away. They need us to work to get there. They need us to be the blessing. So what would it mean to let go of that by giving, if not here somewhere, for the healing of our world, for something other than yourself? I think that's the resounding question for us today. What would it look like for us just to be a little bit more of a messenger of the God who invites and blesses the lost, the hurting, the weak, the weary, the broken? To surrender our story, our time, our talents, our treasures, our life to God's bigger story. To be the salt and the light that our world needs. 
I know those questions challenge me deeply. They make me squirm. All of this makes me very uncomfortable, even to talk to you guys about it. But I fundamentally believe that Jesus knows that I need that sometimes. Jesus knows that if I don't feel uncomfortable, if I don't squirm, then I don't unpack this box more often than not. It just becomes about me. And the fact of the kingdom is a daily reminder that it's just not about you. You're included, but you were always meant to give it away. It's about him, his goodness, his blessing, his invitation, his story, his kingdom, his self-sacrificial love for others. And when I find that in my life, well, I become a little bit better of a messenger for what he is trying to do in my world, in my community, in my job, in my family, my growth group, my daily encounters with people who just need my help. I would just give it away. I find that more and more I get to be a blessing for someone else when I do this. And for a schmuck like me, that's good news. It's good news. So this week, let's just commit to letting Jesus make us a little bit more uncomfortable than we want to be, to make us squirm a little bit, to just be hit by something so that we can become something new. Let us be a little bit more of the flavoring that our world needs. Let us become people who shine light that our world needs. Let us be people who can be a blessing. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me?